We dismiss our children to be taken to their time of worship. As our children leave, let's bow together and pray. You who are the mystery of life, be present among us now as we think together about this story we know oh too well, perhaps too well. Surprise us this morning and awaken in us something that causes us to see the mystery and mercy of the cross in a new way. Make us join with all of your children in all time and space who have followed your way and trusted your truth and been guided by your life. Hear us now as we employ old words that you taught your first disciples to pray as we pray to you, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. As I said, I know we know this story quite well. But I wonder if it's ever occurred to you to wonder why, after three years of ministry, Jesus performed untold miracles throughout his three years, turning water into wine, healing the, the, the lame, cleansing the leopard, allowing the blind to see, uh, walking on water, raising the dead, all of these miracles that Jesus did. But when it came time for Jesus to face the forces of scarcity, when he makes his way into Jerusalem, he sets all the miracles aside and goes it alone. Maybe this is a poor analogy, but it reminds me of uh, Samantha Stevens in a TV show I watched as a child called Bewitched. She was a witch. She had powers. But Darren, her nerd husband, was always saying, Honey, none of the funny stuff. Don't do that. So she'd set it aside. Jesus set his miracle-working capacity aside. He had great options. He names one. He said, I could call down thousands of angels. They would rescue me from this moment. But he didn't. I can think of other great options. He could have gone like all kung fu, gone all born identity on them or something. Or he could have frozen the soldiers and then walked out. He could have uh, turned his hands and his side into steel so that the nails and the sword couldn't pierce them. He didn't do it. Instead, Jesus goes solo. He's vulnerable and he's helpless like a, like a little shepherd boy named David who goes to face the giant Goliath with nothing but a homemade slingshot. 
For Jesus, Goliath was the political and cultural and religious hegemony that had been born in this odd gathering of people between Rome and the Roman Empire and the religious leaders, the temple authorities of the day, and even an insider, one of his own disciples named Judas. All three of these, I said last week, are fueled by what I call the theology of scarcity. Scarcity says there's not enough, and scarcity sees everything else as a threat to their security. And this threat comes from everywhere. And so, the forces of scarcity gather and amass as much power as they possibly can, not only to keep what they have, but sometimes to take new ground because they never have enough. It has an insatiable appetite. Scarcity says might makes right. I can do whatever I want. Therefore, it can conscript a, uh, an innocent passerby named Simon from Cyrene and force him to be a pawn in the drama of this terror that's about to take place. On the other hand, here's Jesus. No funny stuff, no miracles. He could have... I love the miracle where he casts the demon out of a man and puts it in a herd of pigs, and the herd of pigs run and jump off the cliff and drown in the, in the water. Nothing like that. He could have. He didn't. He even told them to put away the sword. Simon Peter gets out a sword. When the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, he lops off the ear of one of the soldiers. Jesus said, hey, put away the sword. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. And then I think the only miracle that happens during the Passion Week is when Jesus restores the ear of the man who's the soldier whose ear had been cut off. Now, funny stuff, putting away the sword. Jesus even refuses my favorite tactic when I'm in the midst of a conflict. Fighting fire with fire. Escalating it a little bit even. Uh, moving beyond being defensive to going on the offense. Terry and I first married, we had to negotiate some things, including how we were going to fight, because my, my modus operandi was, if someone's upset at me, I'm going to be more upset back that they're upset at me. Can I get an amen? <laughs> I see some of you nodding your head. You know this tactic. Terry said to me, it's not your turn to be upset. It's my turn to be upset. But I'd get upset that she was upset. Counselors call this a reptilian reaction. It's, it's instinctive. It's, 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 re, it's reactive. It's not rational. It's kind of pre-thought. But it feels so good. You just kind of take care of business. But he doesn't do it. No miracles, no swords, no fighting fire with fire. Instead, Jesus sets all of these tools aside, these possible weapons aside, and voluntarily faces the powers of scarcity with one small weapon that is the equivalent of a homemade slingshot with one stone that is labeled abundant love. That's it. That's it. This is going to be a slaughter. 
Scarcity is always hell-bent to gobble up everything and everyone, and Jesus knows it. He turns to the women who are grieving for what's happening to him, and he gives them permission to grieve for what's hap- what will happen in all of our lives. When scarcity's malicious appetite wants to have its way in our lives. He says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Weep for yourselves and your children. For if they do this when the wood is green, what are they going to do when the wood is dry? I'm here. I'm bearing my love. What are they going to do when I'm gone from here? He gives us permission to grieve the reality that scarcity is running loose in our world. And the truth of the matter is, if you're not grieving these days about something, you're not paying very much attention. For the theology of scarcity is everywhere, and it runs in all directions, and it comes at us from all directions, even including inside of ourselves. It happens anytime we make destructive choices. Anytime we make the decision to take something that isn't ours to take. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, sexually, it, it matters not. To take what is not ours to take. It happens anytime we act out of our insecurity. Anytime we allow our addictions to get the better of us. And for us to go in a way that we know is not healthy for us or for the world. It happens all the time around the world, and it takes many different forms. If you watched the news this week, you saw the story of the Russian bomb that fell on a large building in Aleppo, Syria. The rescue workers came, as you would expect, and began to pull out the bodies of people, including a child who had been crushed in the building's wreckage. Evidence of scarcity's presence everywhere. Many of you know our church has been reading a book about American slavery called The Half Has Never Been Told. It talks about how slavery shaped the United States even in and up until this very day. It is filled. Every page has an evidence of scarcity. And if you know anything about human trafficking in the 21st century, you know that the same Uh, Forces that were at work in the 1800s are present still in our world today. And here's what I want to say. Here's the reason why I ask if we could have, of all things in our Baptist church, a crucifix hanging above the choir loft. Because I think Jesus on the cross represents every moment, every moment, Not just that moment, but every moment before he came into the world, while he was in the world, after he was here, during our time, and even into the future, when scarcity seeks to destroy what God is trying to build. I think that's what it means to say that Jesus takes on the sins of the world. On the cross, Jesus represents every single one of those moments where he is facing scarcity, exposing it and challenging it with one small slingshot and one stone of abundant love. 
Scarcity was on full display June 17th of last year when a terrorist entered into the Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A young man by the name of Dylan Roof. He may have acted alone that day when he went into the church and sat down in their Bible study class before he began his rampage, but his actions are born out of scarcity's malicious appetite. Here's what he said to the people before he opened fire. You rape our children and you're taking our country. You have to go. I think our crucifix bears this burden. The cross of Jesus bears this burden every time someone is demonized and abused whether it's because of their race or their, their skin color or their religion or because they don't have as much power as another person. And I agree with Pope Francis who said whenever we act out of scarcity, we are not being Christian. After the rampage on June 17th, Dylan Roof appeared in the courtroom some members of the family, some family members of the victims were also in the courtroom. They hadn't planned to say or do anything. But in a break in the action, a woman named Nadine Collier, whose mother had been killed by Dylan Roof, got up and said, I forgive you, and God have mercy on your soul. It prompted another woman named Alana Simmons, whose grandfather had been killed to stand up and say, we are here in this courtroom to combat the hate-filled actions that you had with our love-filled actions. That's what we want to get out into the world. And those who have the ears to hear on that day would have heard a thump as the stone of abundant love hits its mark. Whether one trusts this way believes this way, is willing to put your life into this way, this way of love and forgiveness in the face of the worst and most heinous acts of scarcity imaginable. I think that's the definition of Christian. Christians believe it does no good to fight fire with fire. The only way to fight the fires of scarcity, which frankly are running like a Texas wildfire throughout our land this day, the only way to fight the fires of scarcity is for us to stand up for that which feels most like God to you, most like God's abundant love, to be people who will speak and act and live and represent, to be people who will remind others of what it means to be human, for goodness sakes, to talk about God's love for all people, not just some, but for all. Therefore, to be human, just human. William Stringfell, the brilliant attorney and theologian of the 1940s, went after World War II to Europe. He wanted to meet people, these European people who had risked their very lives in order to protect people who were Jewish from the onslaught and the murderous work of the Nazis. They hid them in their own homes, 
Why did you do this, Stringfellow asked them. And the answers came back almost universal. They said, we didn't set out to be a resistance movement. We didn't even set out to be heroes. But under the Nazis, this is the only way we could remain human. Remain human. Our goal is to be human in a dehumanizing time. It's called walking the way of Jesus. So take your slingshot of love. Because you have one. And to risk abundantly. It's going to look different for every one of us in this room. I can't tell you what that will be for you. I can tell you this. You will have the opportunity to bear the love this week. This week, you will have an opportunity to bear the love and risk in the name of God. For some of us, it means reading this book, The Half Has Never Been Told, that our whole city is reading right now. It's a story about our own nation and racism. Its effects from the 1600s all the way to this present moment. To read that book, for many of us, has been an act of love. It's been hard. It's been humiliating. And in some ways, kind of metaphorically speaking, it kills you to read this book. Because sometimes, as the crucifix reminds us, abundant love hurts. It costs you your life. For some of you, it will mean, in your particular context, to enter lovingly into the political fight cage and speak the truth. Nonpartisan, not Democrat, not Republican, Christian. Speaking what you see as God's dream for the world. For some of you, it means being extraordinarily patient with your children. It's an act of love. For others of you, it might mean being extraordinarily patient with aging parents. That's also extraordinary love. Probably for all of us, it will mean loving someone even when you see their flaws, even when you recognize their stinking thinking, even when you notice the error of their ways. You continue, we continue to love. We don't shoot our wounded. We love. That's who we are as the people of God. This is love in abundance. It's the opposite of scarcity's malicious appetite, which wants to gobble everything up. Love is about giving. It's about blessing, not belittling. It's about including, not excluding. Is this a pipe dream? Does it change anything? We'll think more on this next week, but let me just say this. Two of the four Gospels, Matthew and Mark, tell the story of a Roman guard who was standing at the foot of the cross when Jesus is crucified, close enough to witness his dying. I can picture this soldier with a Roman helmet on, a sword in his belt, tall boots, looking at Jesus whose hands are nailed to the cross. And 
yet, when the end came, it was this Roman soldier who looked up and said, truly, this is God's son. In other words, this is the essence of God. It is of the same essence of God. And I think if you'd been close enough that day to that cross and that soldier, you would have heard whap as the stone hits its mark. That God was hit, that guard was hit by love that poured forth from Jesus like blood from a man being crucified. You might say he was washed in the blood, hit by love as he witnessed. And as I hope you and I are beginning to see, the tool of torture becoming the salvation of the world. It's why we call it the wondrous cross. Let's pray together. Awaken in us, O God, the transforming power of your love that hits us and makes us into your disciples. May our lives not only reflect gratitude, but courage to live and walk in your way. For your way is the only way, truth and life. To you be glory now and forever. Amen.